James Temple occasionally returns to his alma mater, UVA's Darden Business School, to teach a class to the business school students about buying franchises. And guess what? They're skeptical. Maybe you are too. I am, or at least was. As I hear more and more stories like James's today, I'm really starting to warm to the idea of buying a franchise. James started in 2009 with a very modest investment alongside his mother, and today runs a 19-unit, $7 million mathnasium empire with locations across Virginia and Maryland. I just drove by his Alexandria location last week, actually. His story, like my recent guest Doug Johns, who acquired the $9 million Mr. Rooter franchise business, should make the skeptical among you sit up and pay attention when acquisition entrepreneurs start talking franchises. Enjoy my conversation with James Temple, one of the top Mathnasium franchisees in the country. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. August Felker is a two-time successful searcher, first with a traditional search fund. The second time around, he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out oberly-risk.com, O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com. Link in the show notes. James Temple, thank you for joining me today on Acquiring Minds. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. James, you're the owner of 19 locations of the Mathnasium franchise. Mathnasium is a brick and mortar math learning center. You'll tell us more about it. But with 19 locations and over 10 years under your belt doing this, you're, you've been very successful and we want to hear your story. What I'd like to do is spend the first part of our conversation on your story and then take the second part to talk about franchising generally. You're one of my first guests who is an acquisition entrepreneur in a franchise system, but uh, I'm getting more and more requests from people uh, for stories like yours. And in fact, two other interviews that'll air around the same time as this one also have to do with franchising. So it is a topic I'm starting to cover more. Uh, and so today we'll do a deep dive and it'll be great. So to the first part of the interview, James, what started you on this path to building a Mathnasium empire? Yeah, well, um, I had been interested in owning my own business for a long time. I was in the Air Force. I was an Air Force officer for seven years, uh, studied um, math as an undergrad at the University of Virginia. And I didn't know what that business would be or when it would come around. Um, but I knew I, I didn't want to spend the rest of my career in the military. I wanted to go to business school. I wanted to learn business, perhaps have a career, and then... Uh, own my own business after I'd learned uh, a bit about business. So I thought it was some number of years out. Well, while I was in business school, uh, my dad passed away suddenly. 
And that left my mom needing to figure out what her future looked like. And it left me feeling like life was short. And if I really didn't want to go um, do a traditional MBA job after business school, then I really ought to seriously think about getting into my own business now. And that could be a way uh, to secure my mom's future as well. So we explored uh, the opportunity of Mathnasium. I came across Mathnasium in a magazine uh, some number of years before we started. Um, I did a project on it while I was in business school, probably because I, um, I've always really liked math, as I said, and studied it in college. And so, you know, one thing led to another after my dad passed away, and we, we got to know uh, one of the Mathnasium franchisees in Virginia at the time. And she became a, a good friend and educated us well on the business. And so we were moving uh, right, right down that, that path of um, seriously considering Mathnasium. And part of the franchising process is what's called Discovery Day. So you often go wherever the franchisor is located. You spend the day with them. They evaluate you. You further evaluate them. So uh, Mathnasium is in Los Angeles. And mm -hmm. we were uh, on a flight um, getting ready to get on a flight to go to Los Angeles. And this woman who owned one of the Mathnasiums of Virginia had been mentoring us, asked us if we would be interested in buying her business instead of starting our own. And uh, the answer to that was yes. And in September of 2009, we uh, closed on our first location. Great. So you all were seriously considering going the traditional way into the franchise system, meaning you know paying the franchisor and starting your own franchise location territory yourselves um, before getting this call from the woman who'd been mentoring you. And then you acquired her existing location and territory. Right. There were only two mathnasiums in Virginia at the time. There are about 40 now. And so I, uh, didn't, I didn't think to uh, pursue acquiring one of those two locations. There was plenty of opportunity to open mm. uh, a new location. And so that was where we defaulted until she posed that question to us. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, what magazine did you see Mathnasium written up, up in? And it must have really struck you uh, if you did a project on it. And yeah, and ultimately it's, it's you know, the, the business that you got serious about when you and your mom kind of put your heads together. So, but just curious, like, where did you first hear about it? What magazine? You know, I, I, uh, I couldn't tell you what magazine. It was an ad, you know, franchises are in the business of selling franchises and um, they have to advertise just like we have to advertise for customers. And so it was in an ad, a magazine advertising the sale of franchises. I don't remember which one, but oddly enough, I was getting my hair cut uh, on, on base. <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe this was something like 2006, 2007. Uh, and it, it stuck with me because of how much I have enjoyed math. And I, prior to starting Mathnasium, I had tutored some math really just for fun. Um, so it resonated with me because of that. So, so you love math and you actually have experience teaching math to students so, and here was this business opportunity. So yeah, I can see why it would have grabbed your attention. Um, cool. So, so, the, so the plan is that you're going to go into business with your mom one way or the other. Are you all business partners? What, what did that look like? Yeah. I mean, so we really honed in on the mathnasium idea and didn't explore too many other options. And we, we certainly were going to do that together. You know, her experience was in early childhood education. She'd been doing that for about 30 years uh, at that point. And I had uh, finished up a business degree and, and knew, the, knew the technical aspects of math. And so we thought it'd be a, a great partnership. Um, but beyond that, it's just something we wanted to do personally. We wanted to spend that time together. 
uh, and you know, f- go on this journey we were both didn't know much about uh, together. And it wasn't always that we would, you know, both be in the business uh, working it full time. For me, minimal level of success would have been getting her started and something she could have done with mm. her time and to generate income. And that would have probably just been one location. Uh, and, um, and I would have gone and, and gotten uh, a job uh, like uh, many of my uh, MBA classmates. But we had sex, success with uh, First Location, and I, uh, I really enjoyed, uh, enjoyed it. And so we opened Second Location on our own. And and really, from from there, have just been committed to doing it together since. Cool. Okay. So so the initial vision wasn't the empire, um, but after that, the success of the first location that kind of did start to to uh, take shape in your minds that this could be this could be the path. Continue with meth, with Mathnasium. And, and well, I had um, sorry, let ahead. me just add that I had contemplated that it may take more than one location to make this. Um, worth dedicating all my time to. And mm. so I had sketched out what it would look like to own four or five of these, but I had never sketched out what it would look like to own 19 of these. And mm-hmm. so that, that was a gradual progression um, that we've been on for the last, it'll be 13 years in September. Mm-hmm. 13 years. And so your, your taste for mathnasium, as you've explained, I mean, it, it really um, dovetailed beautifully with kind of the combined skill sets that you and your your mother brought to brought to the tables and so you didn't so my question would have been like how to evaluate um how you evaluated this one as a good franchise opportunity versus others sounds like you it was more just kind of like following your interests and where your when where your skills lay than it was oh this is going to be a better franchise than i don't know some quick service restaurant or something um let me put a pin in that question because we'll probably get back to you helping us think through what makes a good franchise or not later in the conversation. Uh, but talk to me about this this woman who's mentoring the two of you and um, you're seeing her business, you're liking what you're seeing. D- d- dive into a little bit more detail about you know that relationship and then why she wanted to sell and, and your decision to in- indeed buy her out. Yeah, we were liking the fundamentals of the business. In particular, I like how math is taught at Mathnasium. It resonated with me from the very beginning. It's how I naturally become uh, came to think about math. And uh, just a, a, a minute on that, you know, at Mathnasium, we really are focused on kids understanding how the math works. We're, we're focused on creating problem solvers and not just problems that you've seen and repeated over and over again, but giving you such a great fundamental level of math and then great problem-solving skills that you can begin to solve problems that you've never seen. Not only because you have those technical skills, but you also have the confidence to attack them and do all that in a way that kids enjoy math. And so that, that way of approaching math really resonated with me as opposed to let's just drill and memorize our way through math, which is not very enjoyable and, and not very productive for, for most students. So we, we learned... During this uh, time we were getting to know Mathnasium with this owner, we got to know that about Mathnasium. All the advertising material says that, but you don't really get to know it until you can uh, feel it and touch it for yourself. So um, that, that was one thing that really solidified that Mathnasium would be, we would approve of the educational philosophy. You know, but, but going into Mathnasium, um, 
you know, just fundamentally math is important, important for kids. And we saw that, that that could be done in a, an enjoyable way. That, the, that owner was implementing Mathnasium in a way that kids were really enjoying the process. But she wasn't growing. Um, and uh, she had some personal, which is often the case when somebody's re- ready to sell. They have personal things going on, which are preventing them from uh, implementing the vision that they've had for their business. And those personal things weren't, weren't going to go away for her. And so, and, and I think she really liked us and we really liked her. And she felt like she could, she trusted us with what she had started and the kids that she had in the business at that point. And, um, and we, we didn't know much about that market at the time uh, because we were in Charlottesville where the University of Virginia is and Richmond about an hour, a little more than an hour away. And I'm not from either of those places. So we didn't know the market that well, but we got to know the market well, and it's a, it's a tremendous market. And so for all those reasons, and for the reasons that we saw room for improvement, uh, we thought this acquisition um, would be a good idea. And let me just add that we're, we're incredibly grateful to her and the trust that she placed in us and the opportunity she gave us because that started this whole journey. Sure, sure. Can you talk about what that first deal with her looked like when, when she sold to you? Uh, yeah, I can talk a little bit about it. Um, Wouldn't it be great to have experts at your back when buying a business? People to help you polish up your pitch and processes as you go to market as a searcher, then help you evaluate opportunities once you get some deal flow. Such experts exist, buy-side advisors, but they'll cost you to the tune of tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars. But another option exists, the Acquisition Lab. The Lab is a do-it-with-you buy-side advisory service, not do-it-for-you. Founded by Walker Dybel, author of Buy Then Build, the Lab represents Walker's vision for what is most needed to make a searcher successful and available at an accessible price. It's cohort-based, and you will come out the other side of your cohort prepared to go to market as a savvy searcher with a tight message and process so brokers take you seriously, pre-approved for a loan, and with an entire community at your disposal to help you along the journey to buying a business. To learn more, check out acquisitionlab.com link in the show notes so the it was certainly underperforming uh the last 12 months revenue uh, was under a hundred thousand dollars i think that's important too because a lot of times when especially um i think the listeners of of your podcast are really focused on finding the big deals mm-hmm. um we we found a quite small deal mm-hmm. um and so it, it wasn't it, maybe it was breaking even for her or losing a little bit of money, so there really wasn't a multiple to talk about. In the end, we paid about thirty dollars to $40,000 for the business. Um, she was willing to sell her finance some of that so that we could have additional capital to grow in the future if we needed it. Um, and it, it, all in all, it was a fairly small and simple deal, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and, and actually, so again, forgive my ignorance about all things franchising, but buying a business for $40,000, um, that sounds like that's less than the, 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 than the startup franchise fee that a lot of franchises cost. So were you able to buy her out for more, for less than it would have cost to do one from scratch? Am I, is that a, is that a, does that the question even make sense? Yep, it does. Uh, so you're right. There's a, usually a franchise fee when you get into a franchise in Mathnasium, that's a per location franchise fee. It currently is more than forty. At that time, it was less than forty. Mm. But there's there's many more expenses to getting started, as you as you know. 
Um, and so I would say we paid less than what it would have start, uh, cost to start it from scratch. Mm -hmm. And you had this existing clientele. So it was, it was a kind of a, a slam dunk, tiny, a tiny deal uh, for you know, the, the average acquiring minds listener and what they're considering for themselves. But still, it was a, it was a kind of a screaming deal. Um, recognizing that you really had a good relationship with her and there was all this qualitative value to it as well. But um, just numerically, it seems like it was a no-brainer. Well, uh, I would say it didn't necessarily feel like that at the time, but it felt low risk in that we didn't have a mm. lot of capital in it, um, that I had the confidence that I could always leave and earn income if we needed uh, that because the business wasn't earning income. Um, and you know, while we had some money in it, the what would keep us in the business is that we were taking over the lease and at some point that lease would expire and we could walk away from the business, not mm -hmm. having lost a lot of money um, and lost some time, uh, some opportunity. So for those reasons, it was a fairly easy decision, but we, you know, by no means did we were we certain we were going to make uh, money and certainly not the kinds of, of money we would need to make uh, to keep us both engaged in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you did feel obviously that you'd be able to improve upon what she had. Cause if she wasn't even, she was barely breaking even or maybe even losing money, then, you know, that's not, that's not worth anything. And unless you, f you figure that you can turn it around and turn it around, you did. So, um, so kind of give us a picture of that first year, um, after acquisition. Yeah. The needle moved, um, what we thought was quickly back then. Um, we have, been able to move the needle much further than that. But in the first year, um, I, you know, I would have to, it's, it's been a little while, so I'd have to actually look up the numbers, but I'm sure we doubled, if not tripled uh, revenue since we were running it ourselves and not paying ourselves. It was certainly uh, profitable and it was able to finance uh, the opening of location number two, which we opened um, ourselves from scratch about 10 months, 10 months later. So it was putting off enough cash that, that we felt confident to take the risk on another one and that it would pay for it. Mm -hmm. And also in those 10 months, as, I, as you said a few minutes ago, you started to see that this could really be something that was worth your while to continue with full time and not go back to corporate life or get, a, get some other job. Those, those 10 months kind of demonstrated that to you? It did. A piece I left out is when um, I graduated from Darden in the summer of 2009, I did take a, a job. Um, it was with Target uh, as a manager in their warehouse. And what was particularly attractive about that job is it allowed me to work Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, 14-hour days, and have Monday through Thursday available to work in the business. So the business was open Monday through Thursday and Saturday. So it would just be one day that it was open that I wasn't there. And it allowed some income to come into the business. So the part of getting the confidence to open number two was getting the confidence to quit that job as well which I mm -hmm. did. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm grateful for Target and what they were able to, to do for us at that time. Um, but when we opened the second one, I was going to go run that one. And, uh, and that, that had to go, which increased the risk because now all the income needs to come from the business. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's further evidence that, that we had confidence in, in moving forward. And, and so, so for those first 10 months-ish, you were effectively working two jobs. You were working you were bringing, bringing home the pay, paying the bills with the target job. And then every other waking hour you were in at your mathnasium center. Yeah. Not, it was pay, a not paying yourself. Right. So it was essentially two full-time jobs and it was rigorous. Yeah. And, uh, that's yeah. another reason why it, it had to, yeah. it had to stop at some point. Yeah. 
Well, maybe you look back at those those ten months. Those th- th- those are your founding months. Those were the right. you know when it all started, got off the ground. So probably uh, you might be nostalgic for them even now. Okay, so um, number two location, you've gotten confidence. You you've um, but there's more on the line because you quit your day job. And why do you choose to um, start start a magnesium location from scratch rather than find another willing seller? Well, you have to know that in that time frame. Mathnasium was a really immature franchise. Um, we were, there were probably 120 units uh, when we got involved. There's almost a thousand units now. There were two in Virginia, and they're probably, I, I don't know if we were number three or if we were number four or five, but there weren't a lot of opportunity, and everyone was still just a few years into it. So I would say there weren't opportunities, at least um, none that, that I saw to acquire additional mathnasiums. We're, we're limited geography and we still are, we've limited ourselves geographically um, even, in, even today. And so there, there were only four or five options and my guess is there were only four or five options at the time and it didn't seem like any of those uh, people were interested in selling, but there was also a lot of available territory and good territory. So um, we, you know, we opened in a, a neighboring territory, the second best territory in Richmond, um, Virginia, and uh, I think that was that was the right decision. And okay, we're, you know, we have you have nineteen locations now, so we're not going to be able to get into the story of each <laughs> one. But um, you, you told me that your your first, what was it? The first one was the acquisition, and then the subsequent seven were all open from scratch, or eight. Yeah, I can walk through this quickly in buckets. So number one and two, you have that story. We decided to then um, secure the rest of the market in Richmond, Virginia, and that was four additional ones. So we got our first six were all in Richmond, Virginia, and that's how many are still in Richmond, Virginia. Then an opportunity came to acquire another location in McLean, Virginia, which is a tremendous market, again, an underperforming mathnasium story, very similar uh, to the first location. And so we, we took that opportunity and um, now we're in two regions, and there's some inefficiency to that. So we say, well, let's let's figure out how we can grow in this uh, Northern Virginia or DC metro area market. And we began uh, to look for new locations. Uh, there's still a significant amount of availability. We begin to look for new locations, uh, and we we map a plan for that. And and then acquisition opportunities started to come our way. As, as well. And so that's really where the acquisition activity uh, started to accelerate. We entered our third market, which is Hampton Roads, the same way with an acquisition. And then there was an available market and we opened there. Um, I count the DC metro area as Maryland as well, um, but mm-hmm. we, we entered that market uh, through two acquisitions. We have, so we have 17 in Virginia and two in Maryland. Both of the Marylands are our acquisition opportunities. So mm-hmm. it was a great way for us to enter a market and then grow by um, opening uh, new locations. At this point, uh, they're really in this in this area. There really aren't any new locations available, so we uh, continue to just be in an acquisition mindset. Okay. So in total, so- we have nine acquisitions and, and ten locations that we've opened ourselves. Great. And so now, um, so you started all of this, and it was two thousand nine was the first acquisition. We're in 2022. So give us a sense of scale today. Yeah, so the 19 locations will do uh, $7 million of revenue this year. 
Um, and they, the, the locations uh, range from um, our underperforming locations at about 200K of revenue. And then we, in 2021, we were recognized as having the top location in, um, in the U.S. at over a million dollars of revenue. And that happens to be our very first location. Oh, wow. <laughs> so. Cool. Congratulations for being number one. That's great. So that, that, gives us, that gives us a range of kind of what a Mathnasium franchise might, um, might do, 200 to a, to a million. At the, a million would be basically the ceiling if you were number one, if that was the number one location in the entire U.S. And maybe 200, maybe it can be probably perform even worse than 200. It was, it, when you first acquired it, it was only doing 100, I think you said. So, um, so do you consider that kind of the range, 100 to a million? Yeah, so there's a document that comes with all franchisees called the franchise dis franchise disclosure document. And item 19 of that franchise disclosure document at the franchisor's option uh, will usually provide financial performance information. And while you don't always get profit and loss type information, you usually at least get top line information. And so uh, if you pulled the 2021 version of that, you would see that it spans from the 100Ks up to our location at just over a million dollars, with the average being somewhere in the 260 uh, to 270K per year. Mm -hmm. Okay, wow. So your, your million dollar location, that's really um, well outside the median and average. Yeah, is my math right? Am I using the, the, the median and average right? Is my math right on that? <laughs> you are. I, I prefer median, but um, but yeah, yeah, you um, you are. And you know, our seventh location, which was our second acquisition, was the top mathnasium at over a million dollars before the pandemic. Uh, and so we have two of those elite class mathnasiums that were acquisitions, which you know goes to a point that that I want listeners uh, to understand uh, is that there can be tremendous opportunity in buying small, especially uh, in a franchise, because they, there are so many opportunities to add on. So if you think about our first um, location or maybe just our, our district of, of Richmond as a platform, we've been able to add on to that and in some cases find uh, grossly underperforming locations and, and buy them with little capital and turn them around and create what is now a $7 million business. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I, I certainly, that certainly sounds very appealing. I'm, I'm always wary of turnaround opportunities. Um, just because from everything that I've ever heard, you really got to know what you're doing. You really gotta, yeah, that basically, I mean, you know, turnarounds by definition are, are suffering underperforming businesses. Um, so you gotta, it, there's enough. There's risk enough in buying any business, <laughs> let alone one that has already demonstrated its ability to fail or underperform. So, um, so you know, I, I, maybe. Well, I don't know. What, can you address that? Yeah, Point? I think the you know a lot of the risk is in the first one, but you understand the business well, and you understand why. Once you have one or six or whatever the number is, you. You understand why what makes a location successful or not successful, and that significantly decreases your risk. Yeah. And if there are a thousand units across the U.S., you have lots of opportunities to find these. You don't have to go find a new business, underperforming business, every time you want to grow. You have to go find more of what you're doing already uh, that's underperforming. That that given what you've proven you can do, uh, you can acquire and make a difference. Yeah. Yep. 
Um, so would the advice be then to not but buy, not acquire an underperforming one as your first one, buy a solid one, and then you know get your get your feet wet, understand the business, operate for a while, and then maybe t treat these um, underperforming locations as as opportunity. Well, just Which just is like not what you did, <laughs> yeah. I think just like most of the uh, those that are searching for a business, yeah. I mean, it'd be great to buy the the well-performing business that's it's worth the investment of more money, gives you the cash flow right away, and it's stable, and then you can add on to that. I think what a lot of people are finding difficult right now is finding those. Uh, it's yeah. a competitive market, despite the the discussion around more businesses for sale. Uh, than ever, as I interact with with you know, all these people searching, whether it be on SearchFunder or or listening to their stories on or podcasts or just meeting them individually, they're having a hard time finding that yep. that perfect business. And um, there there is an alternate path, while while maybe a little uh, more risky, um, could be as equally as, or or more so rewarding. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. Well, let, let's um, tie up your story and then get into some of these more um, intellectual questions around franchising. Um, so just to, in case people miss the numbers, you and your your mother uh, acquired that first location for about 40000 but seller financed. So you probably brought to the table even less cash than 40000 And today your business is doing $7 million in revenue. Can you give us a, 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 any kind of sense of margins? Yeah, let me add to the, so um, my mom and I each put $10,000 into the business and that's what we have in the business today. Uh, while we've left a significant, a significant amount of cash in the business um, to grow, we, we haven't put any more capital in. So um, that, that's amazing. Congratulations. You know, I talk to people, thank you. I talk to people all the time who you know, say they, they just don't have the money to buy a business. And um, not only are there resources like the SBA, but you, there are opportunities to buy small under the right conditions using whatever uh, money you have. In terms of margins, uh, you know they can vary widely by location um, because uh, you know there's a lot of fixed costs. But once you overcome them, uh, the margins are, are good. Uh, as a portfolio, uh, I'll just say that we're somewhere between ten to twenty percent um, margins, and and they're getting better. Um, uh, as we perform. And a lot of our recent growth uh, is to the credit of um, our COO, who started with us as an instructor, who has worked through uh, every position and uh, it runs the business for us at this point, and, um, and, and is an, an owner now as well. Uh, she has a minority stake in the business. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, I just want to give credit where, where credit is due for um, the numbers that I'm throwing out. Yeah, no, that's great. I'm glad you did that. And to that point, what did your own trajectory of working in the business versus on the business uh, look like from our pre-call you and what you just said? It's clear that you're not you're not teaching students math uh, at this point and probably haven't been for a while. So give us that picture, please. Yeah, in the beginning was everything. You know, it, mm. we had a team of three or four instructors and except for them teaching kids, everything else was done uh, by my mom and I. Uh, including we we taught as well, uh, which was enjoyable, but not a way to scale the business. Uh, I quickly took on the the back office uh, type activities of figuring out what our marketing should be, how are we going to do billing, hiring, 
Um, and that role evolved over time. You know, I ran our second location, but eventually hired someone to run it as we opened uh, three, four, and five and had to step out. It just wasn't feasible to, to manage a team uh, that were in different places and be running uh, a location myself day to day. And then we just continued on a journey of, you know, I would take on tasks, figure them out, create a system for them, and then we would find someone else to do them, often in a part-time role, maybe even they had another role in the business. And then as we got larger and larger, um, had the scale, the resources, and the demand, we would centralize functions into um, a a full-time position. Uh, so I, I, the evolution for me became supervising center directors. Center directors are the managers at each of the locations and doing some of the back office stuff, but trying to move back off stuff to other people. Uh, eventually, it migrated to, okay, uh, our, Nikki is her name, uh, our COO would manage the center directors directly, and I would manage back office and, and mentor her. Then it became so large that she needed district managers um, between her and the center directors. Um, and then she, she eventually took the back office as well, and we hired a back office manager. And so now she has three direct reports, um, and there are two district managers and a back office manager. All of that detail to say it gives me the time I need to think about bigger picture things and work on the business and think about acquisition opportunities, growth opportunities, um, what we're doing well uh, and what, what we're not doing well and, and what guidance uh, to give Nikki as she manages the business. <laughs> and frankly, uh, getting a little ahead of ourselves, but to think about, you know, what's next. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a, a, a tempting thing to dangle out there. What, what, what is next? Well, I, I, um, you know, I originally thought my plan was on a portfolio of companies uh, and, um, you know, have a great operator in each, but still have a an operational flavor to what I, I did. But I, I'm taking much more of an investor mindset uh, these days and with the cash that we generate from Mathnesium, looking at ways uh, to put it to work. Um, probably, well, certainly other places maybe in the Mathnesium space, but certainly uh, using my expertise in the franchise space, um, doing some startup investing um, and toying with the idea of, of helping some of these searchers fund um, what they want to do. So it's, it's, uh, it's a young idea, but, but I think I, I, uh, my time will be much more advising and investing going forward rather than operating. And, and why spend your time doing that, James, rather than um, continue doing what you do so well, which is acquiring more mathnasiums. I mean, why not go colonize North Carolina and, and Tennessee and, um, you know, for every, every hour you spend learning how to invest in, in searchers, you know, that hour probably would go further in, you know, acquiring more mathnasiums since you, you are probably one of the top three experts on the franchise in the whole country. Well, I, I, I think I can do both. It's not giving up on mathnasium ah. growth. Uh, it's, it's pursuing that, but, um, you know, it's counting on the great team we have in place um, to manage that business and to manage the growth. And I can still work mathnasium opportunities um, as they come available. So it, I can do both. I think I have my cake and eat it too. All right. Ah, I love that phrase and concept. <laughs> and to see and to see it happening to people, it's so great. Um, and your mom? 
So mom um, has had many roles in the business. Uh, you know, she ran a center for six or seven years, which is that same one that is number one, uh, was number one in 2021. Um, she stepped out of a center and took on hiring and training. Um, and eventually we decided that uh, she can move to an inactive status and focus on spending time with grandchildren, which is uh, a wonderful accomplishment for us uh, and the business that she is financially secure and her time is her own and that she can uh, spend it uh, with the things that are, are most meaningful in life. So Man. she's inactive at this point. And all from flipping through a magazine while getting your hair cut. Yeah. I mean, maybe I should spend more time advertising in magazines is the, is <laughs> yeah. the moral of that story. And this is your, her, your grandkids are your kids or do you have siblings? No, my husband and I don't have kids, but um, all of my other siblings do. I have three brothers and they have, they have kids. So cool. And cool. they're, they're in Missouri and Pennsylvania. So she has to travel a bit and it's nice that she has the freedom to do that. And you're sitting in Richmond now. You live in Richmond? Yeah, I live uh, just west of Richmond in Powhatan. Oh, okay, sure. Um, and is there, uh, what does um, headquarters look like for you guys? Is there, you're not fully remote or are you? Other well, we than are. The, cent the central locations, obviously, but like what is, what is headquarters? Yeah, the, the only uh, team members that, that work out of a, a company location are the the centers the the teams that are in the centers everything else is remote so i i work out of um my home um and nikki and her her direct reports do as well and our entire back office team does as well and how was that how it always was or is that because of COVID? like in you made that change because of COVID? no it's how it always has been uh, i have fought hard against uh renting an office and having us all show up every day um you know, we were able to pull talent from uh, many different places. People appreciate uh, the freedom, you know, pre-COVID as well um, to do this. And one of, the, one of the things we've accomplished is to figure out how our center directors can spend some of their time working remotely, um, some of their non-customer facing time working remotely. And, and that's the quality of life that we would like for them. Um, so we, we fully have fully embraced uh, as much as possible. Um, remote work. And, and during the pandemic, we had to teach online. And even today, we're still teaching some of our students online. And that's all remote. Uh, people are doing that from their homes. And um, it works well. Wow. It, so it works well, because everything that we, you know, all the headlines said during COVID that everyone's um, educational, um, the education quality was was plummeting because kids couldn't learn as well via Zoom as you know in person. Yeah, that I mean, was that not devastating to the business? Just give us give us a minute or two on on Mathnasium and COVID. The hardest part of COVID was the um, emotional and mental tour it, uh, it took on on all of the team to get this right. Um, you know, we shut down in March of. Uh, 2020, it just eventually had to shut completely down. We did not have an online solution to that. The franchise had an online solution they were testing. So thank goodness we were part of a franchise at that point because we had tremendous yeah. support, not only from our peer franchisees, but from the franchise order to figure out how to do this. Yeah. And so within two weeks, uh, we took our 2,000 students online completely and um, you know just had to figure out how to do it. And it was hard on everybody because it didn't work great at that time. And it wasn't just our 2,000 students. It was the 100,000 students throughout the franchise system that had to get on. But from our perspective, 2,000 students. And the system wasn't, you know, 
set up for that. We were going to incrementally move people to online. The pandemic happened. We had to do it all at once. So it was a tremendous effort, and it had lots of bumps, and we got lots of bruises from it. Um, but we um, we were able to you know keep all the customers that that wanted to stay with us, and and then after some amount of time, give them the option of coming back in center if if that um, was what they wanted to do. The reason our students had a different experience than the one you're talking about being advertised is because we provide individualized instruction in a small group setting. What And so that's all we had to replicate online. We still just needed an instructor with three or four kids. Instead of a classroom uh, trying to be moved online, a classroom of 20 to 30 kids with a, a teacher trying to, you know, keep everybody uh, together and productive and learning. And in that large of a group in a classroom, it's really hard to get feedback on what kids are learning and what they're not. You put that online, it's even harder to understand yeah. uh, what they're doing. Classroom uh, management is really hard. Uh, in person, it's a lot harder. Um, online, when you throw in um, less supervision, but also the technical difficulties that came with it. So we, were, we just had a we just had an easier problem to solve than um, the school systems. And so that's why yeah. our customers had a different experience than they were having while they were in school. But you must have felt a revenue decline. I mean, there must have been some parents oh. who, yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think at our, our worst, we were about 25% down. Okay, okay. And have you recovered since? Are you back to pre-COVID levels? Not yet. Yeah, so 2019, we were um, around 6 million. Uh, we did one acquisition since then, and now we're over seven. But that acquisition doesn't account for that million dollar difference. So, um, yes, uh, revenue levels for the portfolio are um, have recovered. There are individual locations that uh, haven't recovered. Okay. And just one more personal thing, James. So you are a, I mean, you majored in math. So that tells me you're a math kind of whiz. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, to, to go to a, a great university and, and, and major in math, um, you get into some pretty abstract stuff probably by your sophomore year. Anyway, so, um, and you like math. That was one of the things that drew, uh, drew you to the, the franchise, but you actually haven't, been, and you like teaching math, but you actually haven't been doing that for years. So that actually isn't a big part of the story. It's kind of how things got kicked off, but one doesn't need to be a math whiz who likes teaching math to have done what you did. A couple of things I would want to say about that. Um, yeah, you know, I, I am, I am good at math. Um, but I realize how much I get to compare myself to the team that we have hired to teach the kids math. And they are better at math than I am, which is uh, which is really what you want in every situation. You, you know, as as the owner and CEO of the business, I don't want to be the smartest person in the room, and I mm -hmm. certainly don't want to be the person best at math since I'm not doing it. So we have a very talented um, math team. Um, that's fun to be around. You know, the business is is a lot of fun um, for that reason because we we get to be around math all day, and and we get to hire math mathy people. Mm -hmm. But that's you. You don't. I'm convinced you don't need that in a business. Uh, if if there's a next business for me, it, you know, it. I, I don't feel like I'm going to have to have the same passion for it. At the end of the day, what I have learned about myself is I enjoy the game of business. 
Um, yeah. It's a serious game. I don't I don't call it a game to be um, nonchalant about it. It's serious. There's a lot of people that count on uh, me and my mom and, and Nikki for their paychecks, and that's serious. And there's a lot of parents who've entrusted us uh, to teach their kids math. But if you think about business as a puzzle um, or a game, uh, there's a lot of enjoyment to be had in playing the game, and, totally. and that's what that's what gets me up um, and working on it every day. Um, now is, is that enjoyment, and I can find that enjoyment in a different kind of business too. Mm-hmm. That's very well put, and I feel very similarly. Um, which is how I how I'm able to get so excited about people who are you know buying whatever all different sorts of businesses. They're all they're all uniquely interesting to me. Very cool, James. Okay, let's get into um, franchising and um, y- you know generally. So you teach a uh, so there, there's kind of the ETA course at UVA. Darden. Darden is the business school at UVA. Um, and it's not called ETA, but it's effectively the ETA course. And you teach the day on franchising. Um, and you, this is all from our pre-call. You had told me that the, that the students are always kind of like, I don't want to do franchising or buy a franchise for X, Y, and Z reason, which Acquiring Minds listeners can, can guess what those reasons are. But tell us what those reasons are. And then tell us what your, what your answer to the students is. Sure. The course at Darden is called Acquisition of Closely Held Enterprises, uh, could easily be named ATE, um, and been doing that for a few years. Was invited to help out with a mentor of mine and eventually uh, took over the class myself. And, you know, you go to business school and you think about all the, let's just call them sexy opportunities that, that you foresee having coming out of business school. Some of those are finance jobs, consulting jobs, great marketing jobs, great general management jobs. Um, and when you start about, you think about starting your own business, it defaults to startups, right? Tech startups, yep. these, you know, sexy, high risk, uh, high reward, doing something new kinds of businesses. But what what seems to be the reality is that most people, a few years out of business school, want to go buy a business instead. Um, and what we want to do in this class is help them understand that franchising is, is an opportunity where you can accomplish uh, that same goal. What, what we're pushing up against are all the things I just mentioned about uh, the sexy opportunities. And, and so the things that they often cite besides just sort of their identity around, you know, I'm a startup kind of guy or, or, um, or something like that is that uh, there's just a number of things. So one is control. You know, you are partnered with a franchisor and you definitely do not have full control over what you can do. Um, you can look at that from a negative side of things, especially if you're someone who wants a lot of freedom and who's very creative and doesn't follow rules well. Mm. But on the flip side of that, that control is purposeful in that there's a system that has been designed for success. And the reason there's control is because they want people following the system so they can be successful and also so that the brand uh, can be consistent. But that's one thing uh, that we hear usually the first is control. The next um, one is around scalability. So in, if I buy a franchise, they're often brick and mortar, but regardless, they are bound by a territory. You know, the franchisors aren't just saying, here's the US, go be our franchisor. They're saying, here's the part of the, your part of the US or internationally, 
Um, and, and so go be a franchisor in your part that we're, that we're giving you. And, and therefore, there is some limit to scale because you can only serve uh, that population. Uh, but scalability comes through multi-unit franchising instead yeah. of uh, just one unit. Now, there are still bounds on scale. You know, those territories still only add up to being able to access a certain population, in my case, of kids. Whereas if I, you know, was an e-commerce business or a SaaS business, then the world is my oyster, right? So, yep. Yep. Um, but if you, from my perspective, you know, I, I can, well, I did. I built a $7 million business that uh, profit margins are 10 to 20%. Um, and that, you know, while, yeah, there certainly are larger businesses, businesses out there, you start to think about the, the risk associated with the opportunities. And uh, I would say, uh, because I've chose this franchising opportunity, I've decreased the risk. Yeah, I've limited some scalability, but still plenty scalable to, to generate um, a return on our investment and the, the income we would want, want to see. So control, uh, scalability, uh, and then there's, you know, paying the franchisor. So margins, you know, profitability isn't, uh, the argument is that profitability isn't as good as it could be because you're going to pay the franchisor franchise fee to get in and then royalties and other fees uh, to operate. Uh, and so a minute on Mathnasium's fees, um, just mm -hmm. to give people context. Uh, we, we remarked on Mathnasium franchise fees. Again, there's some right now somewhere in the $40,000 per location uh, range. Uh, there's discounts for um, additional locations and then for top performing franchisees, there's incentives that reduce that as well. And then on an ongoing basis, we pay 10% uh, of revenue as a variable royalty, 2% uh, of revenue as a, a marketing fee, marketing royalty. And then there's a $500 uh, per owner fixed royalty. So I only pay $500 a month and so does someone who has one location. And then there's a $250 per month per location marketing fee as well. So if you have one location, you know, that, that can add up. Um, for me, it, you know, there's also some rebates if you're top performing. So I, for me at our scale, we're about 10% to the franchisor, but mm -hmm. we couldn't, we, we couldn't do what we do without them. Uh, and not only probably the, the biggest item is the curriculum. Our curriculum is fantastic. It is the, the brainchild of Larry Martinick, who people could look at online. Um, and we could not re reproduce that on our own. And that, so that's worth its weight in gold. But then all of the systems that have been built, software systems and otherwise, that have been built so that we can operate a mathnasium are things that would be, have been really expensive to do on our own and would have required a much larger scale in order to justify uh, investing in. And so... Uh, that that money, most days, I feel like that money is well spent. Uh, and you want to evaluate that as you're thinking about a franchisor. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to have lower margins because you need to pay the franchisor, but what are you getting for that? And how much of those costs would you have had anyway? And again, I go back to, you know, I think a lot about risk-adjusted returns. I might be paying the franchisor, but because we have a proven system and a proven model, my likelihood of profitability is much higher than someone who is going to uh, start start something like this from scratch. Well, so those um, are the big three ones. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, shoot, I just have so many. Okay, um, let me just 
the just to just to um, emphasize the point you made about the royalty fee. Yeah, I, I do feel like people kind of treat that as like a toll or a tax, just a, a cost of being part of uh, being part of the franchise system, and you know, just kind of taken off the top. But you are getting something for it, and not just being part of the franchise. You're getting I don't, whatever depends on the business, a CRM system. You're getting all of this support. You're, I assume, you're getting. Um, you know, access to data from the other, the, the, the other, um, the other units in the system. There's probably a lot of big things I'm forgetting because because I'm I'm naive. Um, but I mean, it's not just money off the top. It's money in exchange for services and value back, right? I mean, well, that's I'm, what I'm you should expect, right? I mean, not all franchises are created equal. As you evaluate entering a franchise, you not only have to. You know, if you're if you're buying a privately held business that's not a franchise, you just have to evaluate that business. When you're buying a franchise, you have to evaluate that location, but you also have to evaluate the franchisor. And one of the things you have to evaluate is what you're getting for the money you're going to be paying them. Mm-hmm. And you know, we've come to a good conclusion in Mathnasium that we're getting what we need um, for what we're paying. But there, I'm sure there are franchises where that is not the case, and and you have to evaluate that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the thing that you just said about, um, you know, um, kind of there's a system there. The market demand is kind of proven because you're buying into an existing franchise brand. So that kind of by definition, it's already it's already has some, some market acceptance. But there's also the difference between a very, very, very established franchise like a McDonald's that's been around for decades um, and is more than proven, <laughs> it's iconic, um, versus like what you did. So Mathnasium was a young, as you've said now a couple of times, a very young franchise. Uh, and so it wasn't, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that it would go from 100 to 1,000 units over the next 13 years, right? So how do you think, how does, how does somebody entertaining a franchise consider that? How do they, you know, yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting to to consider the the spectrum of uh, franchise maturity, and you have to think about that in terms of what you want to get out of the business and also what you want to contribute. Yes, I entered Mathnasium when it was a young franchise. I feel like I took an appropriate amount of risk financially. Uh, I might have taken a little more risk with my time than I should have. Um, mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> it's hard to think about it that way since you know how it's worked out, but I, you know. My time was very valuable, and so that was probably the bigger risk than than the money. Um, but uh, because it was low risk and it was young, and I felt like I could influence the franchise, uh, it it was the right opportunity for me at the time. It would not be the right opportunity for me right now. Like entering, as I think about what's next, starting um, with that young of a franchise is probably not what I'm looking for. Um, because I have more of an investor mindset now than an operational mindset, unless I was partnered with the right operational partner and the financial risk was appropriate. Um, I'm looking for something probably more mature. And, you know, the other end of the spectrum, of course, is the annuity that is McDonald's. Um, You know, you're really an investor if you want to get into that franchise and you can own hundreds of them if, if that's what you want to do. And, uh, I'm not sure that's what I'm looking for either. 
but the, but you have the whole spectrum to work with. And so just f- you have to find the one that has the right level of maturity for you where you're taking the right financial risk and you can contribute in the way that you want to. If you want to be part of the, the ground floor and help really figure out what this franchise looks like, then you want a young one and you want a franchisor who's open to that level of contribution. If you want to benefit from that already having been figured out, uh, then you want to be further up in, in the spectrum of maturity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you decide, uh, or how, how would you advise folks to think through buying an existing franchise versus starting uh, a, a location or a unit themselves from scratch? We've already talked about your experience doing this and, and, and thought about it some, but is there, are, are there best practices here or is it, is it very case by case? Um, you know, I would lean towards buying an existing location. Um, and you know, so if I had, if the uh, world of opportunity, the one I would pick is a proven, um, franchise, a location that is successful, maybe not the most successful, although if the numbers are right, that works too. Uh, but a successful location that um, is going to be profitable and and can generate in the short term enough income for you to do what you want to do to learn the business and then quickly add on and grow from there. That that would be the best situation. Um, but you know there might not be that exact opportunity, and so you have to decide uh, where you are willing to accept more risk and opportunity and where you're not. So certainly starting uh, a new location of a more mature franchise uh, has its benefits. What you have to watch out for, you have to ask yourself, why is it available, right? So if there's people like me in that franchise, why haven't they already opened that location? Ah. There are still great Mathnasium locations that have never been opened, um, but they represent a minority in, in the, in the um, in the inventory of territories that are left. So you have to do the extra work. So that comes with pursuing a more mature franchise too, is less opportunity to open um, from scratch. On the other end of that spectrum, a younger franchise, if you know a territory is good, like I understand Virginia and Maryland and the kids space, right? And so if I was gonna open another franchise in this area um, that was kids related, I would I could predict how well, at least compared to other um, locations that would open, how well it's going to do. Because I understand the kid space and I understand um, the areas that I operate in now. And so there is opportunity at the low, uh, the, the immature end, end of the spectrum as well, um, because there could be so many great, oper- great territories that are still available. Mm-hmm. When I, we I, talk about... So we're not yeah. giving, sorry, we're not giving, I'm not giving you the answer and that's because... Um, I, I think there's opportunity in all quality franchises, regardless of maturity, and you have to match it with one, what's available to what experience do you want to have? Yeah. When we were talking about the range of revenue that you see for, at your units from, from 200,000 all the way up to a million, and you said even that, you know, you have some in your portfolio that, that continue to underperform, um, or that are underperforming now, um, how can there be such a range of performance when this, you know, franchises their reputation and in fact their value proposition is that it should be pretty formulaic, 
you know, you do with the franchisor, the, you play, you do the playbook that the franchisor has given you. You could talk to all these other, uh, your, your, you know, your colleagues in the franchise and, and learn best practices from them. So I just, I wouldn't think there'd be such, such uh, wide swings in performance. Can you, can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the, the first answer is not all territories are created equal. There's not the same number of kids in every territory. There's not sure. the same level of affluence. There's not the same priority on math education. So that's one point. But I've seen territories that aren't great do really well, and I've seen the opposite uh, as well. And that's because it comes down to the person, if, the operator in general, but also the person that's there every day in, interacting um, with parents and with students. You know, it's a very hands-on relationship-driven business. Uh, the, the more people um, like uh, the center director, uh, the more they feel like they're competent and doing the right things for their students, the more they're gonna tell other people about it, the longer they're going to stay. And, um, you know, like any business, it, it is difficult um, to get um, the right people in, in every seat all the time. And and so that that's really the, the the biggest factor is is who's running the business um, day to day. Now we increase the reason our average is above the system average is because we've done the work to take a franchise system and even add additional systems and support to it, so that that person that's there every day, so the average mathnasium owner is there every day and does everything but instruction and even some instruction. Our managers that are there every day have many things that they don't have to be concerned with. They they really need to be focused on parent relationships, uh, working with their schools and communities, and serving those students. They don't need to worry about payroll. They don't worry need to worry about marketing that isn't in the community. Um, if they have a question on uh, something, we have a resource to help them uh, figure it out. Um, there's there's just the billing. They don't have to worry about billing. There's just a lot that they uh, don't have to worry about. And so that increases the focus they can have on the things that drive success, uh, revenue, mm -hmm. and profitability. And that's that's why we um, we are doing better than, than the average uh, franchisee. So the system still needs to continue to evolve so that the everyday owner can have as similar experience to that as possible, that they can focus on the things that grow their business rather than the administrative things. Uh, in the business. And we've made a lot of headway in Mathnasium uh, to the credit of the franchisor and those of us that contribute to helping them figure those things out. We were, Mathnasium was just acquired by Rourke Capital, which is a very large private equity franchising firm. Um, and um, that relationship is going well and they seem quite motivated to continue on this path of improving systems and processes to do exactly what you're observing is to bring everyone um, up a level so that we have more consistent resources available for every mathnasium instead of having to depend on a rock star owner or a rock star center director being at all 1,000 uh, mathnasiums. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't think one of the three things that was said by the students, going back now to the, the, the reasons people don't like the idea of buying a franchise, did you say that kind of, you use the phrase that you're partnering with the franchisor at some point and um, was one of the reasons that there's that there's kind of a lot of, in some ways there's a lot of risk um, as highlighted by what you just said. It's like, okay, so this PE firm has acquired Mathnasium. Um, so now you're dealing with different owners. 
Um, so far, so good. But you know, you you got to hope that they continue to care about the 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 enterprise as much and the brand and, and the direction things are going. So so there is this actually this quite a big risk element that you are yeah you are effectively partnered with the franchisor. Um, and so you got to really believe that they know what they're doing and have your best interests at heart. And if they sell out, that whoever acquires them, in this case a PE firm, same thing. So um, is that a, is that a, a fair point? Yeah. So you have a risk that you don't have uh, if you buy buy you buy a non franchise business is this partner, um, and you you know you have to be serious about doing your due diligence on the partner, but also understand that the partner can change. So we we have had we have wonderful founders, um, and you know after it'll be twenty years, Matthew's gonna be twenty years old um, in October, I think it is, and you know they they've decided to exit, which is certainly appropriate. Um, what and sort of their their last act was to put us in good hands, um, and so we're, mm. we're grateful for them and and what they've done. But that that could go a different way. Right now, I would it it would be a, an odd thing for a private equity firm um, who has investors to come into a business and operated try to operate in a way uh, away from what has proven it successful. And, you know, if it's a turnaround, that's one thing. Mathesium wasn't a turnaround. Um, and so you would expect that they would continue that trend uh, of of operating in a similar way and continue to try to improve it. And they have every action so far uh, has said they that they have. So uh, I'm thankful that the founders made a good choice uh, and that we have a great relationship with our new owners. Um, and uh, some people should think about that as they they enter a franchise mm -hmm. that that additional risk. There's also risk. There's just legal risk. You're you're signing a franchise agreement. There's all of these rules associated with that agreement and you ought to understand them uh, most of them only come into play if the the partnership breaks down in some other way um, but the franchisor is definitely in the driver's seat when it comes to franchise agreements and you you need to assess that risk as well i i suspect that in this world of franchising there are lawyers and attorneys who specialize in franchising um and consult and certainly i know there's such thing as a franchise consultant. So there are people out there who can help you digest the FDD and and all of the all of the considerations, right? Yeah. So the, yes, there are many um, attorneys who specialize in franchising, and I would encourage you to reach out to one of those if you were considering franchising. While your you know everyday attorney will have some knowledge, there's just a, a depth of knowledge that comes from working with someone who who lives and breathes it. The franchise consultants. Um, they tend to be um, people who will help you think about which brands you should pursue. They have a portfolio of brands that they can facilitate a sale of, um, but they get paid by the franchisor. So just understand the nature of that relationship. We used one to help us figure out, um, to look at some other opportunities and then came back to Mathnasium early on. Um, and, and they can be quite helpful in that they tend to have a depth of experience as well. Just understand that they have a portfolio of things they can sell you and that they will get paid by the franchisor when they sell it yeah. to you. Yeah, key key point. Um, it, another point about the reason, the, the students and, and the reasons people might not want to franchise. Um, I don't think you said vanity, and that strikes me as a huge one. You said creativity and the, and the control, which is kind of related, but just, you know, um, the idea that you're not operating under your own, your own brand. Um, do, do people articulate that? Well, I think I... I um I thought of vanity as sort of that conversation before we started listing the three control. You know, it was that whole, it's not sexy. So yeah, absolutely mm. vanity. Um, 
you know, there there are wonderful businesses. Uh, there's a dog um, waste removal base business, you know, pet waste <laughs> yeah. removal business. It's a good business, but I mean, some, many people won't do it because they just don't want to be known as the the dog, the dog poop business. Um, right. And yeah, I, I'm, you know, there's some business that ethically I just don't align with, but in terms of being too proud to operate a business um, that scoops dog poop, that's just not how I'm, I'm made up. It's a service that people value. You can employ great people doing it and you can get a return on your investment and make great income doing yeah. that and all kinds of other business. And, um, I, you know, I don't have any problem having a world-class NBA and thinking about owning a, a dog poop scooping business. So yeah. perhaps I'm yeah. wired differently. I would encourage other people to think about it that way too. Yeah. Although in your case, I would say that there was an aspect, you were drawn to the brand or you were drawn to the concept. I mean, that it grabbed yeah. your attention. And so, you know, you, you've probably felt really kind of, you probably have some emotional connection or emotional draw to Mathnasium as a brand. It's not just the numbers. Um, you probably, you were probably like, this seems like a cool concept that I want to be associated with. Well, and it's a purpose driven business. We, we really yeah. do make a difference for these kids lives. You know, it's, it's really something to see a kid that's in, let's say, second grade and is already frustrated with math because the only way they can do math is by using their fingers and they run out of fingers quickly. And and using your fingers, you often end up with the wrong number and you can never tell someone how you got the answer. And it's that experience in first and second grade that creates a lifetime of I'm not a math person. How many people have yeah. you heard say that? I'm not a math yeah. person. And but yet, you know, but yet you still have many years of math that you have to pursue. We can change that trajectory, and you don't have to be in second grade for us to change that trajectory. We, we've had high schoolers come in uh, using the same example of where they can't do anything but, but count on their fingers to get uh, basic addition and subtraction done, and that has defined their math experience. And we can really we can help them specifically with that, and then that just opens up um, the idea that I, I could be a math person and I could pursue a career in math. It's really quite unfortunate that the majority of kids you know, if this is all the opportunities you have in the world, and maybe 60% of them require some proficiency with math, or at least the problem-solving skills developed through a good math education, that at ages of 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, they're eliminating all of those opportunities that require math and, yeah. and really creating their identity around the opportunities that are left. And it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and so I'm absolutely passionate about doing that, and uh, we, we build a team around that passion and that's authentic. I just got back from Las Vegas from the Mathnasium convention and that passion is authentic. Uh, it, it's why so many of us um, got into it and part of the satisfaction we, we get out of the business, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I go back to my point, you know, th that doesn't have to be the case yeah. uh, to own a business. There's yeah. a lot of, I mean, almost every business employs people. There's a tremendous satisfaction I get from being a business owner that employs people uh, and that that helps them reach their financial goals, and in some cases, uh, have dramatically changed uh, their financial future as a result of them being part of our business, and that we can provide great benefits uh, and, a, and a great work experience and a positive culture. Those things have tremendous value, and you have the opportunity to do those in every business that, that has employees. Um, so there's there's lots of room to find um, passion. Uh, in business, and and that doesn't have to be at the expense of uh, being in having an investor mindset and want to return on your investment and generating income. Very well put, James. I 
couldn't agree more with everything you just said. That's great. Um, okay. I think let's wrap it. Um, franchising is a, a vast topic, so we're not going to touch on everything today. But is there anything from that I, about the concept of buying the, uh, an existing franchise or that the acquisition entrepreneurs, searchers who are listening to this, um, who either haven't considered franchising or kind of are maybe considering it, that you think they need to hear that we haven't already said? Uh, I guess a couple things. One, there is a franchise out there for everything. There are many more franchises than you think. There are thousands of them. The Entrepreneur 500 list is a good place to start, uh, to start thinking about them. If you find a brand that you like and you are interested in acquiring an existing location, uh, getting involved in that franchise uh, community uh, could be valuable. Just waiting for one to come up on Biz Buy Sell is not going to be the way to go. You know, the mathnasiums that I want to buy often never make it to Biz Buy Sell. You know, they're bought before they they end up there. And one of the things that you will have to do and you should do is get to know the franchise development teams at those franchises. So the franchise development teams are the sales teams, but they are also aware of the resale opportunities. They are often part of that approval process of allowing someone to, um, to come up for sale. So just in the same way you would let a broker know, hey, I'm interested in opportunities. Let me know if you have anything specifically for a given franchise that you're interested, building a relationship with the franchise development team uh, could be really useful and, and, and building a relationship with some of the more successful franchisees um, could be useful. And all, every franchisee's name is listed in the FDD, including, I think, their contact information, uh, at least an address or something is required um, in those disclosures. So by getting access to FDDs, you can learn a lot about a franchise. And if you this is not sponsored, but um, if you don't mind me mentioning, fddexchange.com is, um, is a service where you can get access to FTDs fairly easily without having to go through the franchise development process. They can get one free one a day, um, or you can subscribe and get more than that. So there are opportunities to learn about a, a franchise uh, through the FTDs. So I would say, um, I would say, you know, those, those things um, are important. And then, you know, just make sure you do your due diligence. Just because other people have made a decision doesn't mean it's a good decision. So make sure you do your due diligence to make sure it's the right decision for you. James, one thing you just touched on that I had meant to ask and didn't was just about how we've been circling around this, your whole story is around this, but like as an acquisition entrepreneur, um, buying, so I, let's, let's say I get, I, I own a single franchise, uh, location. The path to buying more um, is, I, I mean, I, I feel like I could argue this both ways, is uh, there's more, it's easier or it's it's not as easy. I mean, it's easier in that, that there are all these locations you can re quickly reach out to any of these folks who are, who, who might want to sell their location or, you know, they're going to come to you first if somebody in the neighboring territory wants to sell their location or they're going to come to you or, you know, some of the other close by territories. So it seems like it would be from that perspective, it would probably be easier on the flip side. If you yourself are looking to sell, I, I, I'm not going to project here. Why don't you just, <laughs> why don't you just answer, answer for me? Like on, a, on looking forward at a path of acquisition to grow your empire. Um, do you think being in a franchise network is more conducive to that or being an independent? If you take the example of, let's say, rolling up landscaping businesses yeah, or, or rolling up mathnasiums or, or another franchise, 
I would think that the rolling of the franchise is easier because uh, you understand the system, you have a relationship once you're in the system with with all of these different owners. Um, so I, you know, I would I would tend to say uh, it would be easier uh, to find the opportunities and if you have a good re reputation in the community to close on the opportunities. One risk that we haven't really talked about is if you underperform, the franchisor is not going to let you grow uh, and inquire. So you need to get, you need to show them that early on in the process, early on in your first couple locations, that you are someone that should own uh, additional locations. So there is that additional risk. You know, if you're rolling up landscaping business, the the next landscaping business isn't going to stop you because your other ones aren't performing well. You may stop yourself, yeah. but they're not going to stop you. But the franchisor yeah. will stop you. Uh, if if you're not successful, so some, yeah. something to consider. Um, but I would think it's uh, I would think it's easier in the franchise space. Uh, but that's also all I've ever done. So, <laughs> all right. Well, let's leave it there, James. What what a uh, what a great story, and um, what uh, you know a privilege to have somebody who's so so familiar with acquisition um, in a franchise system on to share uh, share with us. So uh, thank you very much. Congratulations again on, on a spectacular run. Um, and, and I guess we should also say uh, to searchers out there who might be looking for investors in their deal that you are somebody that they should reach out to. Yeah, if, especially if you're in the franchising space um, or any of my fellow Darn alum are, are, are listening, uh, those are two areas that I would definitely be interested in, in um, talking about. So. And happy how to. People, how can people reach you, James? The best way is probably LinkedIn. Um, okay. It shouldn't be that hard to find me, James Temple. Um, just search for Mathnasium and James Temple, it'll come up. Yep. And, and of course, link is always in the show notes. There you go. James, thank you very much, sir. This has been great. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for giving the opportunity to share my story and, and hopefully help uh, someone else who's thinking about doing something similar. Absolutely. Absolutely.